voices and civil discourse across the political abyss. Hey, this is Ed Fallon, your host. We're coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. You know, this program has aired continuously, well, yeah, despite some incredible challenges, continuously for 12 years. And if you value what we do, and I hope you do, become a sponsor of this program if you're a business or a nonprofit, or become a monthly donor if you're an individual. Uh, help us continue to provide this unique platform to viewpoints you will not hear on the big stations owned by iHeart, Cumulus, Sinclair, that sort. You know, unlike the corporate sponsors of those stations, the Fallon Forum is supported entirely by small businesses, nonprofits, and listeners through your donations and monthly pledges. So keep it going, folks. I think what we got here is fairly unique and important. Hey, and I want to take a second to thank our local small business partners, including Gateway Marketing Cafe. Uh, that's Des Moines' locally owned grocery store and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery services seven days a week. You can order groceries online, and Gateway also offers catering and floral services. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Th thanks also to uh, psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. Wherever you live in Iowa, psychiatrist Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. All right, again, welcome to the program. Before I introduce my co-host today, I'm going to just tell you what we've got covered. We're going to talk about eminent domain and how big oil has found yet another way to make it a little bit easier for them to take land for pipelines, although that's not the end of the story. We'll also be talking about the historic wildfires in the U.S. West, and of course, on the other side of the globe, the historic flooding in Germany, which is an ongoing uh, tragedy. We'll also talk about, um, well, I, I'm going to call him America's most corrupt voter. Yeah, Vladimir Putin. Revelations from the Kremlin. This is interesting stuff, folks. We'll also explore the COVID lab leak theory. And later in the program, Kathy Burns joining us to talk about food monopolies. You know, you better really know what brand you're buying and who's really behind that brand. And finally... For those listening on our podcast or website, Brandy Weber, a candidate for Des Moines City Council, is going to join us. With me in the studio, Dr. Charles Goldman. Hey, Charles, how are you doing today? Good today, Ed. Thanks. So, eminent domain. You know, it's always, it's been a big issue here in Iowa because the uh, utilities board here, uh, as and their equivalents in other states across the country, uh, and certainly the, the upper Midwest, have used a state-level power to allow private companies, in this case pipeline companies, to use, to condemn land to build a pipeline. And now the, the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, in a case between Penn East Pipeline Corporation versus New Jersey, I love that, mm -hmm. <laughs> the wow. big oil company against New Jersey. New and Jersey, for anyone who's driven through New Jersey and seen all the refineries <laughs> along right. in 95, this is pretty amazing. Well, yeah, and this doesn't have anything to do with those accords. This right. is about a 1,600, I want to say 1,600 miles. Is that long, isn't it? It's, it's yeah, really it's long. It's like 116 miles. Oh, sorry, 116. Yeah. Oh, you know, I, I like to drop an extra zero in there once in a while. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, that so, would run it from somewhere around Colorado. All yeah, the way right. to Well, not quite, not, not quite, quite, not quite. Yeah, probably from But anyway, yeah, you're right. So it's, it's a, long, a long enough pipeline uh, sending, what, a, a billion cubic feet of natural gas a day? Mm-hmm from northern Pennsylvania through New Jersey to the coast. And uh, New Jersey said, no, we, we don't want any of that. We, 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 have, um, we have 
state-owned land that we think we should have control over. We don't want your pipeline coming through it. Right. And the, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled against them by a 5-4 vote. With a strange alliance strange. on both sides. Very I mean, strange One alliance. of the liberal judges was in the dissent. Two of them were not. They were actually with the majority. And uh, Amy Coney Barrett and Thomas and Grant Gorsuch, and Gorsuch uh, voted, uh, were dissenters. Yeah. And, and, the, and Barrett wrote the uh, dissenting correct the view, which <laughs> right, and and basically uh, Roberts wrote the majority view. And Roberts said that the there's nothing to preclude the federal government from um, basically granting to a private company the rights which that the Constitution would seem to have actually given to the federal government to uh, make decisions about interstate commerce. But but state, you know. It's, it's, yeah, there's a lot of folks uh, in the Republican Party and mm-hmm. plenty in the the vast middle that is unaligned with either party and plenty of uh, Democrats who feel strongly that states ought to have a lot of rights when it comes to these sort of things. And here we have the federal government you know, preempting that for a private corporation. Well, that but here again, it didn't take away the state's rights to take these take pennies to court. <laughs> of course not, but, yeah, they, yeah. but they lost. Well, no, no, no. no. New Jersey lost. New, New, New Jersey has not lost the right to not grant the permits. They simply, it was a question of whether they had the right to sue in court. No, that's not my, really, that's your understanding? My yeah. understanding was that, the, uh, that if, the, if, the, uh, if the permit to build the pipeline was approved by FERC, then the... Uh, the state could not say no to that company if they wanted to bring it across uh, public land, state-owned land. But the permitting is still under the control of the state. So that the, the in other words, they're not going to get to build this pipeline. They may never get to build this pipeline. Yeah. So uh, yeah, and, and I understand. I, I do understand that there are still plenty of obstacles mm-hmm. uh, for the pipeline company, which is encouraging. But what? Yeah. You know, well, why would Penn? Why would, why would the Penny's Pipeline Company even bother to bring this to the Supreme Court if they didn't have some kind of an out on that end, on, on, the, on the state Well, because it would, it, it would have made it impossible for them if they weren't able to override the right of the state to basically drag them into court and keep them there indefinitely to potentially build this pipeline. And, you know, this is—I this, mean, you know, you were involved in this here when you oh, were yeah. a legislator— uh, right around the time, I guess you were involved with it. You know, the case that kind of got pulled up again by this was the Kilo. issue. Yeah, the issue yeah. of the the uh, taking of private land by a private company that was empowered to right. put a uh, well, big mall up on somebody's private key, property. Yeah, I think I think the city of New London. It was in Connecticut. Yeah, yeah I think exactly. I think the city of New London condemned the uh, Kilo family's property and some other homes mm-hmm. and. Uh, and they were doing that on behalf of a private company that wanted to build a mall. Right. And my understanding is that mall never got built. Right? Yeah, yeah, ironically, that mall never got built. That's well, the same thing happened here in Burlington, Iowa, where the city of Burlington condemned uh, public housing, you know, public housing, actually very, very attractive. You don't often say attractive in public housing in the same mm-hmm. sentence all the time, but this was a really attractive public housing called the Manor. city condemned it at the behest of a Minnesota corporation that wanted to build something commercial. It may have been a mall as well, and then they never built it. So, you know, I mean, here's my concern. 
we have a again a fairly slim majority and a very interesting alignment of Supreme Court justices. Mm-hmm. It's not your typical conservative versus liberal justices. And uh, so, what happens? Uh, I mean, is it is it possible to imagine that uh, some pipeline company or some other element of big oil will come back to the Supreme Court and say, "Yeah, we also ought to have the right to build our pipeline across private land." Uh, if, if, for example, the state, if, for example, here in Iowa, the utilities board had said, no, we're not going to give them a permit to build a pipeline across private land. Mm-hmm. What, what, you know, it's not hard for me to imagine that, that energy, energy Transfer Partners and Kelsey Warren would have gone to the U.S. Supreme Court and said, hey, we think the federal government ought to give us a right to be able to run this piece of critical infrastructure, I'm putting that in quotes, through these private landowners' property. Do you, I mean, do you think that's impossible to imagine? No. No, okay. I mean I don't so, think it's Im- no, I don't think which, it's which you know, what the heck is left left of uh, of of property rights in America if that does happen? The fact that we even think that might be possible is crazy to me. Well, but you know, you yourself have just you know enumerated a case in which that's already been in question a long time ago about a, an issue that was much less critical in your mind. I mean, it was just a shopping mall. <laughs> you know, and it, but this this is not a new issue about what the rights of eminent domain constitute. Well, to to the extent that the federal government is getting involved, it is new. It's a new angle, and it's a disturbing angle. Well, only because of the issue that these pipelines cross multiple borders, and you know, the other consideration is what about the fact that you know Pennsylvania is looking at this and saying there's no way for us to move the gas, the natural gas coming off of the western Pennsylvania you know, gas fields out there and the coal, the old, you know, coal fields out there, which is where this natural gas is. And what are we going to do with this resource if we can't move it across one of our neighbors? Well, maybe they should just leave it in the ground. Well, <laughs> I, it, you see, that's the, that's the difficulty, which is that you've got, you've got states with differing uh, imperatives here. Right. And you could ask the question, all right, well, then why don't you move it to the Great Lakes right. and move it as liquid natural gas rather than moving it across another state. Right. You can ask the same yeah. thing of, uh, of uh, well, it's no different the tar than sands the, in Alberta. Well, just move it over to of the course. Pacific Ocean there. Well, because British Columbia didn't want it. Right. Uh, yeah, but, so, but here's the greater issue. Uh, and this is an issue that transcends any particular geographic location. That's the climate emergency. You know, it is... It is it, it astounds me that we would be doing any decision. We would make any decision. When I say we, I mean individuals, public officials, Supreme Courts, make any decision that does not consider the climate impact. And certainly if the judges have been considering the climate impact of allowing Penn East to be able to, you know, to, to run their line through state property in New Jersey, that would have been a no-brainer. This is clearly not in the interest of the planet. That wasn't the question they were asked. They, I know. They were asked I'm not saying they should be asked that question. They should, but this, they were asked a, a constitutional question, which well, the originalists on this court, the you know whatever we want to call them, um, disagree on as to what the Constitution really says on this point of law. Well, it is I, a point of law, ultimately. Yeah. Well, here I am raising climate change, and I think that's a great time to take a short break as we segue to a conversation about the wildfires out west and the historic flooding in Germany. Uh, Charles uh, Goldman with me here in the studio, folks. We'll be back in a minute for more conversation on the Fallon Forum. 
Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Back at you here, folks, with the uh, Fallon Forum at Fallon. Charles Goldman co-hosted today. Uh, thanks again to our local business partners and our nonprofit partners, including Bold Iowa, building rural-urban coalitions to address the climate emergency and to prevent the abuse of eminent domain to build pipelines. You can learn more at boldiowa.com. Thanks also to Birds and Bees Urban Farm, offering classes on how to turn your yard into dinner. Get information about classes and workshops at birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. Okay, Charles Goldman in the studio with me as we, um, as we begin a conversation about the historic wildfires that are raging through 13 states in the U.S. West, uh, 80 large wildfires right now, Charles. Uh, they have burned, as we speak, more than 1.1 million acres. And, uh, you know, it just uh, every year, every year, it's bad, or usually it's worse. And uh, this year, the incredible heat. I mean, records being shattered by, what, six, seven, eight degrees in Portland, Washington State. Uh, one village in, in British Columbia hitting 121 degrees and then burning to the ground. Mm -hmm. I don't know what else it takes to, what else is it going to take to wake people up? Uh I don't know. I don't know that we, we can answer that question. I, I think that, you know, you would think that the poll after poll would show that people are concerned about climate change, but um, still huge numbers don't see it as a problem. I, I think they don't see it as a problem because it doesn't seem to have the immediacy to them. Yes, they're watching fires that are burning somewhere else. Um I think if you live out in the West, it has real immediacy because there's going to be no water out there to drink. Yeah. Uh, and interestingly, of all the phenomenon, I mean, I know you know you want to talk about the floods in Europe and, and all the other things that happened, but of all the phenomena that um, would really support attribution of climate change to uh, human activity, the heat dome out West uh, is yeah. is probably more than any other. Right. It's connected to the fire situation, but yeah. The, right. The but they, but this heat dome phenomenon, there is no explanation for it. it. In fact, it is such an extreme event that it is changing the way climatologists actually look at heat waves. Mm -hmm. And um, they convened, a number of scientists convened, 
they have evidently some association of attribution for these various events because, you know, constantly every time there's some hurricane or there's some, you know, flooding event or, or some other kind of climate event, people are running all over the media yelling and screaming, this is climate change, this is climate change, this is climate change. And, and what the climatologists are saying, and, and the, you know, Angela Merkel said this too in Germany. She's a PhD, I don't know if she's a climatologist, but I mean, she's a PhD scientist. Mm -hmm. uh, I wish we'd see that kind of level of intelligence in our political people. Oh, you just took a slam at Biden? I'm just talking <laughs> a slam at all our politicians. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> you know. Okay. <laughs> but, um, you know, and she said we can't extrapolate from these extreme events. But, it, but in point of fact, this, this scientific group did a kind of quick seven to 10 day look at this issue of what happened with this heat dome mm -hmm. out west and said there is no other explanation right. but yeah, for no explanation. human activity. Right. And, and, and yet there are still deniers out there. Well, but you're also seeing the, the fact that there's a, a synergism between the heat, the fires that then put the carbon dioxide that's sequestered in trees back into the atmosphere again. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. You know, uh, huge rain events would definitely be associated with the heating of the earth. Um, right. This is not wobbling on the axis. I mean, I know I saw you put something out there about one of the events on Facebook and somebody wrote back to you, well, you know, variations oh. in temperature always happen. Right, right. Uh, you know, that that is not an educated answer. That's just, yes, that's true, but it doesn't at, at what address point, what's going I mean, on. We know that a lot of the misinformation is being financed by the fossil fuel industry. And at what point are they going to realize that climate... Oh, you mean like the op-ed from the Heartland Institute? You know, yeah. the op-ed from the Heartland Institute sure. that was in the local paper here. Yeah. yeah. Why but, are we listening to anything they have to say? But yeah, but, but, then, but people do. And, and unfortunately, there are papers... Case in point, that publish mm -hmm. them. But you know, at what point are we going to say that, okay, the, the, this information is not genuine. It comes from uh, a vested interest in promoting a viewpoint that allows a very, you know, small but powerful handful of people to, to continue to make obscene levels of money. At what point are they going to say, okay, this actually also is not good for us? Where, you know, if, if, we, if we end up, if, this, if this direction continues, if we have these heat domes that... Um, that are off the charts that nobody <laughs> nobody has any explanation for other than the climate emergency if we have accompanying wildfires that are worse and worse every year if we have flooding in germany that that is is so unexpected that even the highly organized german society <laughs> doesn't doesn't uh, doesn't see coming you know at what point are they going to say okay maybe maybe even though we've been we've made a lot of money on oil and gas and coal, maybe it's not good to continue to do this. At what point are they going to have the, 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 uh, the intelligence and the integrity to say that? And maybe the answer is never. But, I, I mean, it's a sinking and ship if they keep this up. I, I, I agree with that, but I think we're also letting the general public off the hook. And, you know, you and I have talked about this before, right? Nobody wants to hear the opposite side, which is technology isn't going to fix this. We have to consume less. That's one thing. Second thing is, is that, as Merkel pointed out, overdevelopment in Germany had a lot to do with why it was so destructive. In other words, just like in the West, you've got people living where they don't belong, but they want to live there. Mm -hmm. So we're supposed to, as a society, pay you know, the tab for people who want to live in places where it's almost guaranteed their houses are going to get burned down. You mean or, you're talking about the West. Or, or yeah. in Florida, where you're putting, 
you're putting buildings up on sand, hmm. you know, and then Two asking other people, right, level, yeah, yeah, asking other people to insure it, and then, uh, you know. Well, insurance companies are figuring this out, and they're, they're, they're no longer insuring some of these high-risk That's right, but, the, but then the federal government picks up the tab <laughs> for these, all the Ann Randians who are living down there in Florida <laughs> and are, you know, against the government. No, my point is, is that you can't, the, the West can only sustain a certain population. You know, as can the planet, right? But, but let's just you know, let's just make it real for the people in the United States. There's only so much water out there. Right. The Colorado River is running dry. Okay, Lake Mead is running. historically low. Mm-hmm. There's only so much water. You can only drill so much. Now, part of that, of course, is overuse for agricultural purposes in the Central Valley of California, like in particular al- almonds. Right, we like talk, almonds. We'll talk we about that yeah. some other day. Right. Um, <laughs> You know, at some point, we have to be realistic that you can't just keep building. You can't just assume that water is going to be cheap for both agricultural interests as well as for the people in cities and, and well, towns. Well, yeah, homeowners, but also industry. Right. Industry is a huge consumer of water. Yeah. So it it's easy to always talk about the corporations as the problem, but it's time to look in the, your own mirror at home and ask the real question about how much are you contributing to this? And how much are you really caring about your children, your grandchildren, if okay, you but don't then, curb okay. your own consumption? Fair enough. Challenge people to do their part. But it is really impossible to do all you have to do because of the way the whole thing is set up. For example, I mean, you, there are plenty of places in the world you can't, in the U.S., where you can't, you can't walk. You can't bike. You can't even take a bus because... The thing is, the whole infrastructure is set up to make you drive. Well, there is no infrastructure in the United States. It's it's a crumbling mess that nobody wants to pay again. You know, there's a, there's a price to pay for not paying taxes. Okay. Okay. And well, let, let's talk. Let's. I mean, I, I would much rather see a transportation infrastructure than invested in light rail and high speed rail than to continue to build roads that again uh, are increasingly um, uh, compromised in heat waves, uh, and also increasingly, you know, or, or just they're just going to continue to funnel more and more traffic, causing more and more problems for our climate. And, you know, yeah, there is a price. I, but so I, I don't, you know, I, I don't fault individuals as much as I do our, uh, our elected leaders. Uh, and the... But our elected leaders reflect the discontent. And I'm not just talking about the right-left abyss, as you, as you, you know, referred to it earlier. I'm talking about the fact that if gasoline prices go up 60 cents, people are screaming and yelling. Gasoline prices should go up $5. And then you'll see people finding different ways to get around, you know. Well, they, that, but, but you will and you won't because there, there are some places, in many places, you can't get around without a car. You have I, no I, choice. I understand that. But there's plenty of places where there would be other choices, you know. Let's be real. The majority of the population in the United States is moving into urban areas, into mega urban areas. You know, yes, I understand what you're talking about. In the rural, in the rural areas, it, that would create more of a problem. But I, I just, I, I really think that the only way you're going to see political action is if people finally open their eyes and stop with their own selfishness and their own belief that everybody else is sucking the teeth of the government when they're not. You know, everybody does. Mm. And water, you know, what about here in Des Moines? Water prices probably should be three to four times what they are based on how much money they have to spend to yank out the nitrates. Yeah. And if, you know, if that happens, you know what would happen? 
then the upstream farmers and the water districts would find a way to have to mitigate. But since nothing ever happens, people see it's still cheap. They don't care. At any rate, the bottom line is we are, it's the climate, the climate emergency is not coming, it's here, and we need to do something about it, ASAP. But I want to switch gears, Charles. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, uh, I want to talk about Vladimir Putin, uh, America's most corrupt voter, apparently. If you believe, and I do actually, a Kremlin report. I, I believe that the, the ninjas down in Arizona did find a vote oh. for Biden. Well, from okay. Vladimir Putin. <laughs> <laughs> hey, back in a minute, folks, on the Fallon Forum. Groovy Goods is your Des Moines one-stop hippie shop. Located near Drake University, we are more than just a store. Groovy Goods is about community. We're a tribe brought together by peace, love, and rock and roll. You will be greeted by friendly staff, the smell of incense, the vibration of healing stones and crystals, the vibrant colors of clothing and tapestries, and an extensive herbal apothecary and metaphysical products. At Groovy Goods, everyone is welcome and no one is judged. Check us out online, groovy-goods.com, or stop in at the corner of 23rd and University in Des Moines. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Back to the Fallon Forum, Ed Fallon with you here, broadcasting from Amer- America's heartland. That's right, Des Moines, Iowa, where the corn is tall and uh, well, and the weather is fairly reasonable so far. Hey, I want to thank our local business partners, including Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. You can learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page, or just by giving Dr. Kim Holding a call at 515. 515- 232-8766. Thanks also to Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Uh, Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and in Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 8, sorry, 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. All right, with me again, Dr. Charles Goldman. And uh, you know, probably like us, you were probably like, what the heck, when you read the uh, story about the um, Kremlin documents being leaked. Oh, I'm, I'm not sure if they were leaked or stolen or how they, how they came It's a little in. unclear from but the Guardian But I mean, the Guardian, is, the Guardian is my favorite newspaper. I think they do a great job. Uh, and the, the story in the Guardian says that Vladimir Putin personally authorized a, a spy agency within, the, within Russia to, um, quote, support a mentally unstable Donald Trump in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. That occurred, that, that comment and that discussion occurred during a closed session of the um, National Security Council, Russia's National Security Council, not to be confused with the U.S. National Security Council. Uh, and um, that, that... Who came to the same conclusion. Who came to the same conclusion, <laughs> right. No, I mean, 
This is crazy. So, you know, I mean, Russia, our historic enemy, right? Well, at least in the 20th and now 21st centuries. But, you know, backing, you're standing behind President Donald Trump. Why? And partly because they regard him as mentally unstable. <laughs> but um, this is incredible stuff. Uh, maybe not that surprising. I mean, it was pretty clear that Putin and Trump had a pretty cozy relationship. And that uh, a lot of what Trump did and said was was uh, not exactly challenging uh, Putin and some of his transgressions. Yeah, it, it just you know, and, and the whole premise. I mean, my premise was strong men like strong men. You know, the uh, the um, <laughs> you know, if if that's how you govern, you want to you know buddy up with someone who governs the same way. Well, you know, I, I read the article too, and um, I just I just feel you have to be careful. I mean, I think there's well, elements yeah. in there that there's a picture of the group that met on that day that's in that article. Right. We know, therefore, there was a meeting on that day. Um, I, I just, you know, it's, it's just like the Dan Rather thing with George Bush, W. Bush's records from the National Guard, you know, and, and it turned out that the type well, font was not no, one it, that existed okay. at the time. So it could be like that. Right. It and it, I just think you have to be really cautious. And the article does say, yes, they vetted it with various people who would have some expertise as to the veracity of this dossier. Right. In but, the, you know, let's remember that they also had, they would maybe some of the same people who vetted the Golden Shower dossier that, you know, led to the uh, <laughs> Mueller investigation. And that turned out not to be as uh, fulsome as we thought. Mm. I, I don't, in some ways, though, it is, what the article said is not surprising. I mean, the Russians saw Trump as divisive, that the divisiveness would be to their advantage, they were, they were correct. Right. And they were correct <laughs> in that, um, and that, that the inexperience of Trump would be to their advantage. So none of that is really shocking. I, I think at this point it's absolutely clear that they were engaged in a pretty extensive social media uh, disinformation campaign. We know that. In fact, yeah. there's now stuff coming out from the Facebook that's, that's, information, that's which shows that. that they knew it at the time. So, and if that if that's the case, then why wouldn't this be believable to me? I mean, again, I have a lot of respect for the Guardian. Mm -hmm. It's not one of these publications that are likely to release something without having some degree of certainty. Um, they've vetted it. They run it by a number of key people, uh, and it looks entirely true. One thing that surprised me was that the um, Kremlin would be whoever whoever prepared the uh, summary of the meeting would be so blunt as to call Trump mentally unstable. Well, no, <laughs> they were quoting they were quoting a, a a report that they had accumulated on Trump and they had come to the conclusion that he was mentally unstable <laughs> and a narcissist. But, you know, so did his his niece and others. Mary uh, Trump in yeah. the book that she wrote. Right, yeah. but I mean other psychiatrists had also done that too even though they weren't supposed to diagnose without actually having talked to Trump. But um no, I mean, I, th I think you're right. It's, it's believable, and it goes along with what we already know. They well, absolutely... The question, remember, in the Mueller report was, did was there quid pro quo? Was there coordination? Uh, it, it appears, certainly, you know, from Roger Stone that he was coordinating with them. But remember, he was pardoned. So, um, yeah. 
I, I don't know that this really throws any new information yeah. in the mix that we didn't already suspect. Well, I, I wonder if it if it may have any impact at all on the 2024 election. Uh, my suspicion, tell me what you think, uh, Charles. My suspicion is Donald Trump may indeed try to run again for president. I know uh, you were unable to make this excellent uh, uh, event that I went to, the uh, <laughs> Iowa Family Leader uh, Conference, where... Yes. Uh, where a and boy, Christy I really Noem was sorry I didn't get there. Christy Noem, <laughs> uh, Mike Pompeo, uh, and um, and Mike Pence all spoke, and those are three re- leading Republicans who are regarded as, you know, very possibly interested in running for president. Um, I, I, you know, I, I suspect that none of them will run if Trump runs, but you have to wonder how these kinds of additional revelations, this one, you know, this Kremlin document, might impact that. I mean, you know, potentially Trump could be the Eugene Debs of the 21st century. <laughs> you mean the, it's possible the that socialist he w- candidate? That's right. Back in the early point, yeah, yeah he, he might run his presidential campaign from prison. Okay. You know, or well, from, from a civil court from which he cannot leave because, you know, there's so many suits against him. No, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, I believe that one of two scenarios. You either have the Matt Gates scenario, which is that, Trump is going to be made the Speaker of the House, that he run in some district that he can't possibly lose, yeah. although they could try to make him the Speaker of the House even as a non-member of the Speaker of the House. So if in 2022 the Republicans take the House, that they could legitimately try to make Trump the Speaker of the House, and he would then—this is, this is the reappointment scenario—that right. um, he could then remove um, the president and the vice president, or they could— it somehow well, how do you, how, what do you mean remove? I, this is the little part of the Gates thing I'm not totally clear on. But well, this is Matt uh, Gates, the uh, the sex abuser, uh, what a, 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 alleged, 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 uh, alleged partner of underage women, right? Um, With some really, really, he, really he, strong, no, he said really he did not evidence. know. He did okay. not know that she was underage. Okay. Um, and um, and then he could, by being Speaker of the House and next in line, make himself president again. Right. That's the one scenario. And the so, other but, but scenario how, how, is he runs in 2024 because everyone's afraid to get run against him. In the, right. That's in the, the more likely one. But yeah. why, how, how does that work with him? Uh, how, how does a Republican Congress remove the president and vice, vice president? You're talking about him being impeached? Uh, by impeachment. Right. Okay. And then the Senate would have to convict... Well, well if... The, yeah, if Mr. McConnell's back in charge. Exactly. That's, that's a no-brainer. Yeah. Okay, so you you think the twenty twenty two midterms are likely to go Republican? Um, I think the, the the Democrats are vulnerable in the House. I don't think there's any question about that. I think they're actually less vulnerable in the Senate. They may actually. I think the Democrats should they play their cards correctly. <laughs> Sorry, uh, that's I, always they should. <laughs> yeah, right. okay. actually have a better chance of expanding their majority in the Senate. Where do where do where do the Democrats expand their Senate majority? Certainly well, they, not by beating Chuck Grassley in Iowa. No, no, but they they only have fourteen seats up. There's twenty seats available um, in the rotation, and plus other retirements. Now, the danger before that is, and this is the whole argument for why that Stephen Breyer should retire as soon as possible. Gosh, is what's wrong with him? Is that at a fifty-fifty <laughs> Senate, all that has to happen is one of the Democratic senators from a Republican state should succumb to some illness. Um, and then that Republican governor would appoint a Republican, and then the, the Republicans would have the majority again. Or even the Republican governor in a Democratic state, Massachusetts, for example. Correct. Yeah, okay. 
Yeah, so there's 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 plenty of um, open right. questions. No, but I do. I I, I I think that it was really nice to see all those people out there the other day. But if Trump <laughs> decides he's going to run, he's they'll gonna, get behind he, him. He, even they will get even Mike him. Pence, who his people wanted to hang. That's anyway. right. They will get behind him because they are absolutely flaccid. Yeah. Despite what, <laughs> despite what Vladimir Putin might say about being unstable, mentally unstable, it doesn't matter, right? He's he's their he's their standard. Bearer. All right, yeah, we got to run to a short break. Uh, Doctor Goldman going to stay with us as we talk about COVID when we come back. Give you a, putting your medical cap on, Charles, as we talk about the lab leak theory about the coronavirus. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Klipsham has been doing this work for over 30 years on a wide variety of project types, specializing in super-insulated structures made from, wait for it, grain bins. Yup, with the right experience, tools, and creativity, so much is possible. View images of projects and learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis.com. Dr. Charles Goldman co-hosting with me today. Uh, thanks again to our local business partners, including Architecture by Synthesis, adamantly and actively supporting the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations. Owner Mark Klipsham knows we must all live and work with the goal of building better health for both people and the planet. The services Mark provides are wholly committed to that end. Check it out, folks. That's Architecture by Synthesis. Thanks also to Groovy Goods. That's Des Moines' one-stop hippie shop where everyone is welcome and no one is judged. Groovy Goods calls itself a tribe brought together by peace, love, and rock and roll. Learn more at groovy-goods.com. That's groovy-goods.com. Or just stop in at 23rd and University in Des Moines. All right, again, welcome back to the program. So, coronavirus... You know, there's always something in the news, but um, intriguing to me and perhaps to you is the theory that the virus was set off by a essentially a leak out of a laboratory. To try to try to make some sense of that and to analyze it, I defer to my good friend and medical professional, Dr. Charles Goldman. So, um, you know, I think. The issue of where the, the coronavirus originated um, almost immediately got poisoned by the politicization that you know went around all of COVID. Trump calling it the Kung flu. The Kung flu. Kung flu. Right. right. So um, the certainly the mainstream scientific establishment, as interpreted through Dr. Fauci, um, almost. Preemptor, you know, preemptorily 
came with, no, this is clearly not a, a virus that was being experimented on. And we'll talk a little bit about what has come to be known as gain-of-function Gain of function, gain of function testing mm-hmm. or uh, experimentation, um, and early on in you know 2019, a group of fairly preeminent uh, virologists and epidemiologists came out and said, "No, this is clearly a wild variation of uh, bat coronavirus." And then, of course, they um, kind of went with the explanation that China gave, which was that there was um, there was cross-contaminated. Right. But the problem problem was that a number of virologists asked the question of how this happened during a season when bats are not particularly active. They're mostly (laughs) hibernating. Right. And um, and when there was no particular evidence that there were actually live bats present at the market. market. Mm. Um, and of course, you know, the, the Chinese went in and disinfected the market almost after closing it down almost immediately. And on the other hand, there were a number of virologists who were not among the signees of that letter um, that came out saying it's clearly natural origin, who as soon as they heard Wuhan and coronavirus said it's a lab leak. Now, and that was back when? when that when? was back in 2019, but they were not early, the majority. Early, early, early on. on early on. But okay. the mainstream media pretty much went with, you know, what Fauci and right. um, and these other scientists were so talking. So why, why would Fauci be so— Well, because he is a he is a proponent of gain-of-function experimentation. So, so gain-of-function gain gain experimentation us, is to artificially um, make mutations, mutations that don't naturally exist. Right in viruses or other pathogens to see what happens in terms of if they were to theoretically gain this function, then what would that, well, it gives you information as to what would be the mechanism by which the virus could be made virulent and pandemic. What's What's the benefit to doing that? Because you need to prove that these, there's tons of mutations that can occur. Sure. And what could be a gain-of-function mutation, while it may help the virus in certain ways in terms of infectivity, may actually render it much less virulent. So you don't know. This is, you, you, you can, to some degree, do this on computers. You can model it on computers. It seems safer. It's far safer. No, and, and there are plenty within the virology field who we're now speaking out to a much greater degree, who were speaking out at so the time, but was, were muffled. Was there a nefarious intent behind it? No, no, no. The, I don't, the, the, that's, this wasn't biological that's warfare. That's the problem. Well, okay. So that's, that's, see, that's the problem. The problem was that coming out against the natural origin of the, the COVID-19. Wuhan, the, the Wuhan wet market. The Wuhan wet market or some other. The problem is that they never could find the intermediate host that would have gone from bats to humans in this market. Right. And so they still haven't found who the intermediate host is, what Could, animal. Some dog? Somebody's Anything. Somebody's, in some somebody's cases, like system? I think with one of the SARS, with one of the Asian, the avian flu was like a ferret. I mean, mm-hmm. it, you know, it was, it was, it could be any organism that could be this intermediate host. But the point is that they've never really been able to prove. Now, I'm not saying it's, it's not possible that this is still the correct theory. Right. But what they they got drowned out, and they and it turned out that there was money that was going from the infectious disease 
division of NIH through this kind of front organization run by a guy, a, a doctor by the name of Ralph Barrick down in North Carolina, who is running gain of function studies on, vi- on, on viruses here in the United States. Okay. okay. It's not just something the Chinese do. That's correct. Right. And yes, you gain of function studies can in fact make biological warfare weapons. Right. Because if you make a virus which is easily transmissible more virulent, then it's dangerous. That's disturbing. Okay. Now, the history of gain-of-function studies was that they actually, there was a moratorium on them from, 19, from 2014 to 2017, following a number of accidents in the United States. Okay. Uh, which, it, included, it, 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 which included the erroneous mailing of a smallpox uh, vial to a, another lab which was handled... How do, you, how do you do that accidentally? Because it, it was improperly cataloged and no oh. one knew it even existed. Right. Okay, there was also an anthrax leak. And these are from American labs. And those leaks occurred... Well, well the, the first one occurred by, by, by U.S. Postal Service. That's correct. <laughs> and the other one? And the other, I don't know the exact details so how, of. How did they, I, how the did other one, I believe, was, was again, that the... the um, the anthrax was in, in, in the improper level of isolation. It shouldn't have been handled in that lab. So back to the lab leak theory uh, for the coronavirus. Um, so, yes. So there's what? a woman who's known as the bat lady, a, a researcher who is... Crazy a, bat lady? No, no. Like okay. super, super bright and like the world's expert on bat viruses. Okay. She has absolutely stated that she was not doing gain of function on this virus. The only problem is, is that, and there's some excellent, excellent reporting in both New Yorker and um, most recently in Vanity Fair, really well researched, uh, which also includes that the American government, elements of the American government were also concerned about the very same thing. And they were told, don't bring it up, you're opening a Mm. can of worms. Um, So there was, there was a, a, Outbreak in a mine in the 2013-2014 time frame from which the Wuhan virologists harvested viruses. A mine in China. That's correct. And and there was a a graduate student's paper which seems to uh, describe a virus sequence pretty similar to um, the initial coronavirus that became, you know, COVID-19. So it's a little bit unclear how the the researcher at Wuhan is claiming that this lab, this virus was never in her lab because there's a real question as to whether the virus was in fact in her lab. So you suspect she's just trying to protect her. Well, she is trying to, well, she's trying to protect uh, gain of function research in general. Okay. She's trying to protect herself, and she probably is also trying to protect what she's being told so to do l- by the Chinese government. So let me ask this. So the, uh, yeah, sure, the Ch- Chinese government would like us to believe it was a bad at the Wuhan market. It would be better for them if that were the case. But, you know, right. but, the problem is that this is key. This is all part of the QAnon thing, which was that the virus was released to make Donald Trump look bad uh, in the 2020 election. So, you, so you're, kind of a, you're kind of the same opinion as QAnon here. No, I'm of the opinion that actually I think it's much well, more likely released. that there was a lab. No, there was a lab accident. Accident. Okay. There was so a lab it wasn't, accident. You don't think it was released on purpose? No, no. Okay. I think it's most likely that there were three researchers who went in November 
to the hospital with what looked like influenza. We also know that if you look at blood transfusion samples from China, that there were antibodies to COVID-19 that occurred in the fall of 2019, implying that it was already out, Hmm. either from natural progression or from this lab leak, well before the big epidemic was noted. So I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that the Chinese government knows what actually happened and that at some point someone's going to get to the bottom of it. And uh, I, I and would say that we may never get to the bottom of it because there's interest on both sides here in the United States. In, what's in, the U.S. interest? Uh, that there are those in, in the United States, including Dr. Fauci and Dr. Barrick, who are kind of the nexus of this, who believe that gain of function is an important tool for preventing pandemic Disease. Okay, so what, why, why would that prevent them from accepting the, the lab leak theory? Because it, because it would raise the question of, can you safely do these experiments in well, any yeah, lab I think it does raise world? that question, doesn't it? Well, sure it does. <laughs> and, you know, there are those who sort of take the middle ground, even among those who are the biggest critics of the natural, uh, the natural arising of the virus, who say that, yes, and this is the way the moratorium, the moratorium was turned over in 2018, and the, the mechanism for that is that there would be impartial review as to whether the importance of the findings of gain-of-function experimentation justify the risks. And, you know, the, the biggest problem is you need a, you need a level four lab. What's to, that mean? That's the highest level of, okay. of, of handling of these, right. of these viruses. And this was not a level four lab? Uh, those who say that they worked at Wuhan who, you know, are out, outside of China say that there was a level four lab there, but they did way too much stuff in level two, three, and that it was not a well-run oh, lab. Okay. All right. So, uh, what's, so, so what's, what's the next chapter in this story? Well, where do we go from here? Well, I mean, I think Likely. that I think that you know, we, Dr. Fauci has became very popular, and he was on Saturday Night Live and everything I mean, else. And there's a lot of things. He's, he's also on a pair of socks that I own. Right. That, yeah. So I mean, but he, I think there's science is not perfect, and this is an area that, of uncertainty, and and I'm not sure that I'm totally. Dr. If, Fauci was not impartial in terms of this. If, if this happened issue. once, it could happen again, and the next it's time happened it before could, in the United States. Well, and it's it not could just be more serious at some time. That's correct. At some point, this could be much more serious. Yeah. Well, how about if smallpox got out at the point sure. when we don't vaccinate people anymore? Right. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Right. I mean, smallpox has killed billions of people over the history of humanity. So sobering. It is sobering. Charles, thank you for your take on that. That's interesting stuff, and um, yeah, we'll uh, probably be revisiting this conversation again. Hey, folks, we're going to take a short break. Uh, when we come back, uh, Brandy, if you're listening to our podcast, again, we are interviewing all Des Moines City Council candidates, all those who accept our invitation, over the course of the uh, next uh, month or so. And if you are listening to those on our podcast, again, this week we'll be talking with Brandy Weber. She's a candidate for the uh, third ward in uh, Des Moines. That's a ward three candidate. Uh, there's three candidates running in that, in that council ward. Uh, after that, or if you're listening on our on our radio stations, um, we'll come back with a conversation with Kathy Burns about food monopolies. You know, what brand are you really buying? Who owns these brands? How many of them owned by one company? You'll be amazed at how few corporations own almond milk and soy milk. Back in a minute, folks, on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. 
Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week, with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures, great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Hey folks, welcome back to the Fallon Forum again. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we're broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, the heart of America's heartland. Thanks to our local business partners, including Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Westrom Optometry, Groovy Goods, and psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. And thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Bold Iowa and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. I'd like now to welcome to the program Brandy Weber. She operates her own graphic design and photography business in Des Moines, and she's also a stay-at-home mom, and I just learned she loves cats. She's also one of three candidates running for the Ward 3 Council seat in Des Moines. Brandy, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So, climate change. First question, simple one, climate change, is it happening? Yes. Um, I mean, short and simple, absolutely. Yeah. Um, are, are, is it man made or man-propelled, absolutely. I think that I think that history and science shows us that around the Industrial Revolution, there was a huge increase in our CO2 output. And so what that tells me is that governments and big corporations are having the biggest impact on climate change, and therefore they need to be at the forefront of the solutions. And certainly the wealthier nations of the world uh, have been the biggest culprits in terms of <laughs> spewing the most, not just carbon, but methane. I mean, I get, I get tired of uh, people, sorry, President Obama, who try to tell me that uh, methane is the, or natural gas is the bridge fuel. Right. You would agree with that? It's not yes. the bridge fuel. I, um, I think right now, if we are investing in anything other than um, clean energy, we are doing a great disservice to the next generation. Yeah, I mean, you, you look what's happening around the world between the flooding in Germany, which we've talked about on this program earlier, and the wildflow wildflowers, wildfires <laughs> out west. This is historically, you know, these are historic weather events that are of great concern. Yeah, and happening one after the other, and it's only going to get worse until we make big bold changes. So here I am interviewing you and giving you my opinions, um, <laughs> but I should be asking you yours. For example, what uh, should local government, you're going to be on the city council if you win, what should the Des Moines City Council do in response to the changing climate? Well, I think that question is twofold. It's what can the city council themselves do and what can they empower the individual to do? Okay. So. Part one. Yeah, part one, the city council. There's a lot of responsibility there. Um, you know, we need to make sure that Every decision the council is making has the climate crisis at, at the forefront of decision making. Mm. Currently, we have um, a uh, pro procurement ordinance that you know makes sure that we're getting the best bid for city deals. Right. But what about 
a green purchasing ordinance sure. that that makes sure that not only are we getting the best deal, but we're making sure that it's not adding to our climate crisis. And that's always a challenge with government is getting getting governments to uh, government officials to agree to do something that isn't only about the lowest cost. Yeah, yeah. and I think it's where are your priorities? Um, you know, or. Is there anybody on the council right now who uh, would agree with that, that you should prioritize the any any particular expenses, climate impact, not just what it's going to cost the taxpayers? That's a tough question because I can't speak to their views sure. and, and, you know, where, where their priorities are. I can say that Des Moines has taken, you know, a step in the right direction when mm-hmm. it comes to fixing our climate impact, but we need to go further. Mm-hmm. And I feel like our current council is, they have the right, like they're pointed in the right direction, but they need to take actual steps to get there, if that makes sense. So we need to let a fire under their butts. Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, our goal of 2035, um, you know, to be energy efficient and, you know, Des Moines being on 100% clean energy, I think that that is way too far away. Well, and it's also just for city uh, operations, correct? Right. Right. So um, you had three components of, of the climate crisis that are very important to me, I, I, I think, are what we, what we do to localize our food production our water usage and conservation, and our energy systems. Let's start with food. Uh, what would you do to make Des Moines, and again, I will say this, I think Des Moines is already a pretty friendly place for urban agriculture, although there are lots of problems. We need dedicated land, for example, for for, uh, for food production. But what would you do specifically to encourage the city to do a better job at supporting uh, you know, urban agriculture? Yeah, well, again, I think that's, the city's responsibility could could manifest itself in like community gardens at libraries mm. right and then we have one of those yeah yeah and then but i'm talking every library mm-hmm. you know or at least most of our libraries have a lot of green space around them we could be utilizing that to help solve our like the social issues that we are facing such as food insecurity and the mm. food deserts that are in des moines but then on a more empowering level then you could empower the community by supporting those local, you know, urban farms to mm. to a higher degree. I mean, one one problem we, we were Kathy and I were down at Jasper Winery for one of the Thursday concerts last week, and we noticed that three beautiful agricultural spots that are not small; they're significant in size. One of them now is growing eggplant, but they're all sitting behind the sign that says, you know, for sale for industrial use. Yes, these are three prime lots that have been. Uh, I mean, there there's there's water lines running through them. There's a fence, a tall fence to keep deer out. There has been, you know, I assume there's been plenty of amendments to the soil to keep it, you know, uh, fertile. And yet that land is going to be turned over to industry. How do you convince the city officials and others that it's not just about creating tax base, it's also about creating spaces to grow food? Well, I think, one, you have to have a voice on that council that's willing to even bring it up. Hmm. I don't feel... Like that's something the council has right now. And two, you have to have somebody who's willing to then fight for those policies. Right. Not just get it in front of the right ears, but 
but make sure they're hearing you and listening. And I think that's another thing that our council is lacking. Okay. So what about water? We uh, have, we're still in a drought, although it's getting a little better, but we see tremendous contaminants, uh, nitrates, soil, other toxins in the Raccoon River, algae blooms in the Des Moines River, right. the most, one of the most expensive nitrate removal systems in the world because of these problems. Mm-hmm. What would you do as, as a Des Moines City Council person to try to improve the way we manage and take care of our water? Yeah, so I think there are several options that the City Council has. What they're, what they're choosing to do is to dig wells. That is an expensive <laughs> solution yeah, and it's right. very temporary. Um, obviously, you know, that's what they feel they need to do right now to solve the problem, but I would bet that they know that that is not a long-lasting solution. Um, I would say we could do things such as, like, um, increasing buffer zones for factory farms to make sure that our water is not getting polluted with waste. The city can't decide that, but the state legislature could. Right, but that's where I'm going with it. So what we should should be doing is... you know, this is a Des Moines issue, but it's also a Polk County issue, and it's an Iowa issue. Mm-hmm. So what our city council should be doing is making a coalition of all the other city councils in Polk County and then taking it to the Board of Supervisors mm-hmm. and then, you know, having them contact all of the other mm-hmm. people in charge underneath these legislators and go up and really fight for our right to clean water because currently what's happening is everyone is passing the buck or, you know, saying it's a it's a... It's a tough solution, but really what it takes is it's going to take every single one of us mm. holding those people who are making these laws accountable for the quality of our water. Okay. And what about energy? Uh, you know, again, most of uh, Iowa's electricity comes from coal. Uh, more and more has come from wind. Um, Des Moines has done something with benchmarking to try to get certain buildings to do a better job at, uh, at conserving energy. What would you do additional to the progress that's been made to move us further toward 100% renewable energy. Yeah, I think any sort of updates that are happening to our city buildings or city properties need to be moving towards like solar energy and other renewable energy sources. Mm. I think if we are paying more into the fossil fuel industry, again, we are doing a disservice to the generation coming. Every single decision our city council makes needs to take into account the, you know, the rising danger of climate mm-hmm. change, and and that includes, you know, our city utilities. Yeah. So one last question. Maybe this is the toughest question. You're running it. It's a three-way race. You, Corey McAnally, and Josh Mandelbaum. Mm-hmm. Josh Josh Mandelbaum is the incumbent, and he's you know generally regarded as some as pretty progressive on climate stuff. Mm-hmm. So. What, what is it that you would bring to the table that's not being provided right now by the current incumbent council member? Yeah, I think, let me say that what Josh has done has definitely been a step in the right direction. I don't want to take that away because it definitely has been. But the steps currently being taken are very small. In fact, we haven't really taken another step since the 24-7 Um, like policies that Josh wrote up. Hmm. We need to be taking these steps every single day with every decision the council makes. For instance, today at the city council meeting, they're voting to purchase new city vehicles, Hmm. 20-something city vehicles, not one of them's electric. Hmm. So we, 
we don't have a voice on every single <laughs> on every single city dealing and we need one because mm. it takes every single opportunity to to truly turn the wheel in the right direction well brandy i really want to thank you for taking the time to join us we could probably talk for a lot longer but that's <laughs> about all the time we've got if folks want to learn more about your campaign where would they uh, where would they go Brandy Weber for CityCouncil.com. That's B-R-A-N-D-I mm -hmm. and Weber with two Bs. That's correct. For CityCouncil.com. Mm -hmm. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. When we come back, folks, uh, Kathy Burns of Birds and Bees Urban Farms going to join me. We're going to be talking about food monopolies. You would not believe that some of your favorite brands are actually owned by a very few big, powerful corporations. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Market and Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Thanks for joining us today, folks. I uh, hope you've enjoyed the program so far. Before we introduce our next topic, I want to thank Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's our anchor sponsor. Gateway is my grocery store. It's a great specialty food store as well. The uh, cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, take-out service seven days a week. They've also got a floral service and, uh, and a catering service as well. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Well, Kathy Burns, welcome to the program. Thank you. Okay, um, so food monopolies. Uh, we think about that in terms of um, production, but we don't often think about it in terms of brands. Well, when you go to the grocery store, you may be like us and you want to shop local and you may have a brand that you say, well, it's, it's, it looks like it's more local, it's something new or it's something healthier. Uh, you may not be getting exactly, you may not be supporting the company that you think you are because a recent story by The Guardian uh, in which they recount a study between them and Food and Water Watch revealed that, I have to read this to get it right, um, nearly 80%, well, a very few companies control nearly 80% of the most common grocery items and 85% of groceries analyzed. Uh, four firms or fewer control more than 40% of their market share. How do we let this happen? <laughs> I mean, what happened to you know, laws to regulate monopolies, to prevent monopolies, laws to... Uh, to um, push back against uh, antitrust violations. What happened? Well, you, <laughs> you remember a guy named Richard Nixon. Yes, he was a tricky fellow, yes. <laughs> yeah. um, he was uh, 
famous for having said to the uh, to Earl Butts, is Secretary of Ag, is that right? Yeah, or, yes. Uh, get big or get out. Get big or get out. That was Earl Butts who said that. Oh, yeah. oh it was. Under Nixon. Oh. I think it was under Nixon, maybe earlier. Okay. But yeah, Okay. that was a while ago. So the concept of getting getting big or getting out it was, it was supposed to be about efficiency, but really right. it was about uh, politicians kind of caving into pressure to uh, a few people who had the ability to buy up all the brands. Yeah. I mean, this is the problem with, with American, uh, our, our economy anyhow. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we allow the big to continue to get bigger, whether they're individuals, Jeff Bezos, enjoy your time in space, or whether they are corporations that uh, gobble up other corporations, or whether they're universities for that matter. I'm sorry. You know, my, my little college on Vermont just got gobbled up. <laughs> so the gobbling up happens across the spectrum in America, not just the economy, but but you know, in this case, it's it's uh, it's disingenuous because you think you're buying the very wholesome local product, and it's actually owned by somebody you despise. Well, I <laughs> I wanted to get some examples from this article from the Guardian. They they did an amazing job researching this, and they broke it down into categories of things you commonly buy at a grocery store. For instance, uh, veggies, fruits, and grains. It says that in that market, the Barilla owns 33% of that market. Ebro, Veggies, fruits, uh, and grains? Uh, of, really? Oh, I'm sorry, of pasta. Oh, okay, of pasta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Thank you for correcting me. Yeah, in, in the pasta area alone, Barilla has 33% of the market, and Ebro Foods has another 28%. That's that's a more way more than 50% of yeah. all of it. In so, uh, bagels. I mean, well, I'm curious. How, what, what, um, how many different brands does Barilla market under do we i don't know? know how many brands about barilla huh. there's there's a it's the uh, another one that i i did get some more information about that but uh, bagels i wanted to talk about in, in, All right, in bagels. this category we just had a new york bagel recently by the way and they are pretty good it was good <laughs> just toasted with cream cheese and they weren't that expensive amazing. no maybe the only thing in new york that was actually affordable and a cup of coffee <laughs> for me not, right, for, not you. for me. So if you're out buying bagels, uh, wh- no matter what brand you're seeing, uh, it's possible that uh, you're buying something from Grupo Bimbo. Grupo Bimbo. I have not heard of Grupo Bimbo. Well, they own 64% of the bagel market. Grupo Bimbo. And I've never heard of them, but it's possible <laughs> when you're buying when you're buying a bagel. That's whose bagels you're buying. Beverages, of course, you know, we know the sodas are all controlled by PepsiCo. But um, I was surprised to see that in the refrigerated soy milk market, Danone, they're kind of like Danone. Didn't that used to be Danone? Well, that's what, that's a parent company for Danone. Oh, so it is Um, Danone. They own 79, more than 79% of Mm. the soy milk market. 79%. 79%. Yep. Soy milk. Mm-hmm. The uh, so-called healthy alternative to the re- responsible alternative to cow's milk. I like cow's yeah, milk. Yeah, I like cow's milk. <laughs> and if you're doing some people are lactose intolerant and I get and that. I've had to do the that. soy milk for a family member who's been lactose intolerant. But you know, it be, it's a shame that it's it's 80% controlled by one company. Mhm. Mm-hmm. And again, and so you're not really supporting anybody local. But the, how do you so how do you figure out okay, so you go to your your very friendly I love I, I, you know, I, I love your brand. Mm-hmm. How do you know who owns them when you're in the, you're, you're shopping? You don't know when you're you shopping. Know? You've got it. Well, unless you get your phone out and you Google who owns Dannon. Right. And who has time for that when they're actually trying to rush through the uh, aisles to buy what they need for dinner or something? Huh? Because I like coffee a lot. And I'm drinking it <laughs> here. 
Um, I did see that the coffee market is 25% owned by the J.M. Smucker Company. I always, I always associate Smuckers with jam. Jams, I do too. They own coffee too? And they got your whole breakfast covered. Starbucks only has 16% of the market, which yeah. when I say only, only, I guess I presume only. they have most wow. of it. I don't know where Duncan comes in there. Dunkin and tea, Donuts, right. you're a tea guy. Unilever yeah. owns 21% of the brands. Hmm. Um, so it, so it was I, I, I take that challenge. I will have to check out and see whether my preferred um, Irish breakfast tea is owned by that company. You know, okay, so tea, not something we can get local anyhow. Right. I do, I do um, drink a coffee that's roasted locally, but I don't know where the beans are sourced always. But back to soy milk. I mean, I mean there should be, if you like soy milk, there should be plenty of local options in, for example, Iowa, where we grow an awful lot of soybeans. But it sounds like 80% of the soy milk is controlled by one company, probably not located in Iowa. Well, that brings us to the other point. Not only does this monopolization of food affect you as a consumer, but if you're a food producer... A.K.A. farmer? You're, yeah. And, or, um, rancher, okay. uh, dairy, Fisher person, whatever, yeah, cheese yeah. maker, whatever. So the producers are getting squeezed out as well. Uh, they are... Uh, they're they're forced now to just grow the foods that uh, in the big amounts that the the distributors want and need for their bottom line. And don't they get like less than twenty cents of the uh, food dollar that's uh, that's, that's um, that eventually gets paid for that product? I am seeing that according to the Guardian article, uh, 15, 15 cents of every dollar that we cents. spend in the supermarket goes to farmers. Well, and the rest goes to processing and marketing yeah. our food. And, and like you said, there's a lot of pressure to grow certain mm-hmm. crops for certain reasons and to sell to certain um, certain middlemen, if I can call them that. Middle people. Middle people. <laughs> <laughs> middle, middle folks. Middle folks. That, uh, that, that, that scoop most of the profit. Well, um, the pressure comes from lobbyists. Um, again, I'm reading from this article that during the 2020 election cycle, the food industry spent uh, $175 million on political contribu- contributions, including lobbying by PACs and individuals and other efforts. So um, it came out of every part of the food chain, um, wow. dairy, eggs, cheese, everything that you put in your mouth and swallow. Yeah, yeah that's, um, that's not surprising, actually. I mean, the... I've heard there are, I can't remember, five or ten lobbyists for every member of Congress. Well, the Not just on food, but across the, across the special interest spectrum. Well, it's growing, too. The, the $175 million spent in 2020 by those lobbyists uh, in the 1990 election cycle, that was only mm-hmm. um, $29 million. Yeah. So, I mean, the bottom line is, tell me if I'm wrong, Kathy, but the bottom line is you should try... You know, as much as possible, buy directly from a, a farmer, producer. a producer, somebody, somebody who's local. Uh, you know, you, you just can't trust where these brands uh, originate or who controls the the purse strings on those, and probably makes the bulk of the bulk of the money. The again, it's not the farmer. That that's very consistent with what I've heard too. Is that farmers earn between you know ten and twenty cents of every dollar that 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 that, uh, that is eventually spent. When we go to buy meat, and we don't eat a lot of meat, it's usually a side dish in our meals. But we, if we're buying it at the grocery store at all, we always ask where it's uh, where it's grown and produced, and if it's sustainably raised, or we buy it directly from the producer. Going through a locker, yeah. of course, a local locker, yeah. 
right. uh, in one of the small towns. You know, it's, it's, it's a little more work to get this sort of thing set up, but once you do, you know, it works pretty well. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Kathy, for joining us. Mm-hmm. I appreciate it. Uh, folks, uh, thanks for tuning in to today's program. Thanks to uh, Dr. Charles Goldman, my co-host today. Again, thanks to Kathy for joining us. And thanks also to uh, Brandy Weber, candidate for Des Moines City Council, if you're listening to the online and podcast version of this program. And thanks to our partners, uh, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Westrum Optometry, Groovy Goods, Dr. David Drake, and our nonprofit partners as well, Bold Iowa and Birds and Bees Urban Farms. Thanks for tuning in today, folks. And again, this is Ed Fallon, your host. See you next week.